Welcome. Um, unfortunately, this film didn't really age, it seems. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it was kind of never really um, in pristine condition as an original, so it yeah. continues to age, but not in other ways. That's what I meant, yeah. yeah. Uh, so what you're showing us, uh, the images come from the end of 60s, but you have gotten to, the, or you started, your, you worked with the images in the end of 80s. Yeah. So what made you come back to those particular um, images at the end of, at, at that time, at the end of 80s? Um, I think throughout the 80s, I had this feeling that um, there was a certain amount of both recuperation and denial about things that had happened in the 60s. Um, and in many ways, I think there was this kind of almost a situation where ideologically people thought that these kinds of events might never happen again or that they were, you know, some sort of um, fiction or error. And it seemed to me in that kind of immediate context that there were still things going on, um, police brutality and police murders, for instance, that um, sort of referenced and resonated with those histories and that, you know, those things that on one level were being sort of represented as being resolved actually had not been and they were kind of ongoing and that they probably might and could continue as they have in different ways. But so they were also framed in the media differently, I mean, than you framed them. You, you frame um, these riots as riots against, as you say, also against commodity. Mm-hmm. So you kind of bring this, I mean, this, this thing that we now are also realizing, this kind of turbo capitalism that is kind of, uh, that is actually the backdrop, like, or the, the main reason of um, these things happening. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, I did want to frame that as a kind of possibility, as a reading, you know, Um, not necessarily one that would be given by the participants, um, nor would be kind of a normative reading, but one that could exist. And I think one of the things that really fascinated me was that the article that I borrow a lot of the text from um, was written like, I think, within two years after the event, something like a year or year or so. And was, I think, on some level intended to kind of provide that kind of backdrop um, context and historical rereading, and that that too seemingly had been partially forgotten. And so it might, it would be interesting to bring these two things into tension with one another, realizing, of course, that it's not possible to totalize those things. And but I, I was interested too in in the fact that in, sometimes in the earlier reception of the piece people would ask why, you know, a more traditional um, research-based documentary approach wasn't taken. And it was kind of, I don't know, I I felt like I wanted to reverse certain things, um, certain protocols, where a lot of this footage, for instance, was familiar to me from, you know, news coverage or um, documentary context that, you know, seek to explain in a kind of linear and logical way. And I thought well, maybe I want to displace that also, you know, um, while hopefully bringing, you know, these materials and their tensions to attention. It's 
So the yeah. materials come also from the media uh, or from the news. Uh, so you saw them from the news, but you also got, got something from the archives. Or So was it all uh, presented as news or in the news? Well, that's maybe an interesting question. Um, yeah, is it... Was it presented as news? The, the original context for the footage were newsreels, which I guess was, you know, a form for theatrical presentation and not meant necessarily for broadcast. So what I saw, let's say, on television would have been reuse of the material in, you know, maybe documentary context, which I, I found very interesting in a certain way because it was kind of the very end of the production cycle of newsreels mm -hmm. um, for theatrical release. And so they had kind of, by the 80s, become kind of an archival you know, product that um, traditional documentaries would recruit and use, or you know, news. So yeah, it, it also one of the striking things, at least to me, about looking at this material in its original sort of sonic and presentational context was how um, I don't know quite how to put it, how inappropriate the soundtracks often were That's what in the I beginning. Wanted to ask, because <laughs> yeah. I, I think I heard somewhere, and you had a lecture where you presented yeah, yeah. the soundtrack, which really sounded like absolutely horrible. And it had this kind of, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they were soundtracks that also kind of related in strange ways to like filmic genre, not necessarily to information, you know, um, about these things. And it made me think about, you know, well, is, is that kind of dissonance, if you will, or um, discordance kind of a useful technique in a way? I, I wasn't really super, super conscious of it while I was doing it, but in retrospect, having looked back on it um, over a good you know, period of time and distance and separation from it, I realized that in a strange way, the strange soundtrack, which people you know, often comment on because it's not, it's not bound to the time, it has no sort of pop cultural connection directly to the events. You mean sort the of Skinny Puppy soundtrack? Yeah, the soundtrack. Skinny Puppy oh, right. is kind okay, of like... Yeah. I mean, that was kind of... That's not from the 60s, right? No, yeah, and it's, it's material it, yeah. that I was listening to at the time when I was putting this together and editing it. But there's a weird um, resonance between, um, you could say, some of the sound, sound samples that are used, which tend to be from, like, horror or B-movie sci-fi kind of sources, and the actual original soundtracks, which are not quite the same in terms of how they're put together and how they're assembled. But the kind of mismatch between genres is something that, you know, kind of struck me in looking at the original material. And then I, I think I may have, you know, subconsciously wanted to amplify that yeah. in certain ways to make it more, you know, discordant. Do we have maybe any, some comments from the audience or questions or answers? There are no original soundtracks in the piece. Um, basically, I stripped off all the soundtracks. I can tell you what was there. There was commentary um, from the editorial, I guess, position of Universal um, Pictures in their newsreel division, um, basically decrying most of the time. And um, I don't know, reading these events as kind of irrational, whatever. 
Um, in one instance, there is a monologue from President Johnson, I think it's probably clipped from a speech from another context, where his voice kind of intones um, the horror, the inappropriateness of these events. Um, and then there's like this generic music, like from a crime drama or um, a sci-fi film. And it's sort of like, I don't quite know. A disaster what, movie. A disaster yeah. movie, or yeah. And so it, it just sort of struck me the, the question of like what sound gives to you know these things in their original context and how I might constitute maybe a more extreme version of the same. I mean, you say sound complicates image. I like that very much. You 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 had it and uh, you said it in yeah. the lecture. I mean, in in certain ways, for me, sound is never neutral, and so sometimes I have made pieces um, where there is some sort of relationship, a kind of direct relationship between the sound and the image. But more often than not, I choose to do something where the sound adds an element, whether it's a kind of temporal or contextual disparity that I hope that, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of useful for me to try to think through, let's say when I'm organizing a piece is what will the sound contribute? What kinds of material can drop out um, so that you, know, you can emphasize, let's say, the relationship between sound and text? Um, yeah, it's, it's been interesting as I've kind of moved my work often towards like text only, away from like using um, legible imagery. I mean, I, I think it's in some ways it functions as a kind of you know, um, both call to imagination and to some extent maybe a kind of relationship to the body and, you know, to a kind of affective realm. Um, maybe to break down a kind of Cartesian logic of, you know, um, the mind versus the body and that they kind of mutually inform each other in certain ways. And yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know the history, the deep history, say, for, at the time when the texts themselves were generated. Um, but I do know in the 80s, kind of the early to mid 80s, there began to appear translations. In fact, there was one book, I can't remember the title now, probably something like Situationist International and Anthology, where there were a bunch of translations of their texts by this one guy, I think Ken Nab. Um, and that's a book that I found somewhere in the like early to mid eighties. Um, how influential it was, that's a, an interesting question. I, I think for both makers and scholars, especially from that period, maybe not so much directly from the sixties that there was a huge influence. I'm guessing that there was some awareness in the US in the sixties while it was going on, but probably more in terms of, you know, people doing political and cultural studies in French. There was a question first there, and then we go to the middle. Um, I'm interested always in a kind of complication between, let's say, the theoretical and the anecdotal. And I sort of feel that often in popular texts and forms, there is a kind of historiography of, you know, you could say the cult, the, a, a, a particular like moment 
always being articulated and or disarticulated. And so for me, it, it was always useful. And this is, you know, pretty relatively speaking early in my practice. It was almost like, um, almost as a, a, a polemic to say that these things are connected and not as disparate as they might appear. And the idea that you may be familiar with this material from one context, but here it is placed against something else and the context is different. And how do these things resonate against each other? Again, it's sort of like, I, I, you know, I wouldn't have done it, done this piece with just um, theoretical material. It seemed really important to try to locate it in something like a near present or um, a legible sort of popular culture or subculture. There's a question in the middle. Mm -hmm. Now, um, yeah, the duration question. Um, what was the first question? Let me see if I can answer that one first. <laughs> the title. The title is basically borrowed from um, the the article on which it's ma you know it's majorly sort of quoting from, and I I thought it might be interesting to. Um, maybe complicate the way in which it would normally be described um, and to call it a rebellion as opposed to a riot and to introduce the idea up front of the commodity and thinking about the relationship between these events and commodity cultures. Um, I know it's a, a bit of a kind of rhetorical um, lure in a certain way and I you know expected some people to read against it and they did at the time when it was released um, but I thought it again it was important to to try to clarify or to um, frame or reframe an argument about the terms under which um, and the ways in which these events had been habitually described and, you know, you could say continue to be described in terms of social action, you know, comparisons between, you know, social events and natural disasters, for instance, is something that has continued beyond not only the 60s, but continue on, you know, to this day. Um, and it's sort of like, what kind of analogy is that and, and how is it positioned and what is its um, effect intended to be? in terms of displacing um, those kinds of um, thoughts and ideas around social events. You know, why, why this constant desire to displace, reduce, um, disempower, um, render illegible or irrational, these things which might make a certain degree of sense. I, I think for me also, it's kind of a matter of trying to ask questions maybe about the relationship of um, violence in the state. Um, why exactly is it that um, as individuals we are often not allowed to imagine violence as an actual outcome when it seems to me that the state always has recourse to violence. In terms of duration, um, I was kind of interested, you know, most of the actual newsreel sources were very short. And maybe at the time I was also beginning to think about ways to complicate the history and reception of the music video. 
And so the idea of, you know, I, I could have done it within one track, but there didn't seem to be enough, um, maybe even repetition, because I wanted to kind of go through the material at different speeds, to repeat things, to sort of, um, I don't know, produce a kind of feeling of duration that would be longer than a single track. And I was kind of interested in almost, again, um, ready-made or appropriation in relationship to the soundtrack itself, the idea that you could take one track, well, maybe not one track, then two tracks, and then maybe not two tracks, and then three tracks, and then to use that as a kind of um, almost like compositional form. Um, that may also have something to do with the original situation for presenting this. It was done as a component for an installation, and I decided, kind of as I sometimes do, um, not to have the soundtrack present in its initial presentation, but I needed to edit to something, because, you know, usually for me, again, it's a compositional device, and I often kind of use differences between what's going on in the soundtrack versus what's happening in the image track as a way of kind of thinking through things, um, figuring out, you know, can, for instance, um, how much text versus how much image one might want to have in a piece. And I think sound actually helps with that. Um, so anyway, I, I thought, well, you know, a medium length, not too long, but longer than the duration of, you know, any single track. And then I kind of had these three tracks that were kind of stuck in my head, and I said, well, I'll put these tracks down. And that's often kind of the first compositional thing I do in a work. So it seemed like, okay, now I have a kind of set duration, and then I can think about how the text and the image might relate to those components. But it wasn't like a commission, you know, where I had a specific length or something as a kind of requirement. It was something I was able, thankfully, to develop myself, so. Any more uh, questions? Maybe I have uh, uh, one more question. Um, you did move away from the from the image into a like completely uh, like color fields with just text and uh, and uh, and sound. So how did how did that happen? I mean, you you said it a bit already, but how did you kind of decide to just go into these yeah these two mediums on like reading and and listening? Yeah, it, it was a little bit of, I guess, a response and reaction to um, some some things that were happening culturally and historically. Um, there was a certain moment right after 9-11 where it, it, I, I began to ask a question about what one can do with certain classes of imagery. And... While I would not say, oh, it's impossible to use images of, let's say, disaster, um, I thought, well, maybe there are other, other means of sort of coming to terms with that, and that maybe, in some ways, if you want to ask questions about a culture of the image, maybe you can't always have recourse, especially to certain classes of spectacular imagery, and so I began to think, well, what would it be like to kind of have the pictures, which have already 
which already exist in a certain way and, and, all, and, and you know, people may have already seen, if not a particular image, then variations on that image. Is it possible then to talk critically about it without necessarily referring to it at all times? So I think that was kind of maybe where my thought was going. Um, and it was interesting. I, I, I think about like a specific moment or a specific project and that that kind of concretized that. And it was like around the same time, like, you know, 2001, 2002, um, I had finally decided to complete a body of work that I had kind of worked on in a kind of fragmentary way about kind of then current pop music and its histories and sort of for that project, which initially started as a text, I decided um, rather than go with the standard image repertoire for you know things referring to pop music, that I would just make it like an S, you know, um, have the visual or certain you know attributes of the visual form of the essay, and so I actually was able to make those pieces and then of course reverse myself um, to close it off. I actually appropriated an entire documentary but with a kind of, you know, scrolling text underneath it. So it's, it's never been absolutely closed. Occasionally the image reappears. Um, it's, it's interesting now that you're talking about it. It's, it's almost like you can, you know, very much complicate this idea of the essay film because the essay film is like something that, I mean, from the 60s onwards, yeah, yeah. kind of, yeah, function. A form that a, I, I find, you know, admirable and useful. Yeah, but this is now when, when one watches your films, you can also say this is also an essay film. In a way. Yeah, in a way. So I find that quite uh, funny. <laughs> uh, I do too. Any more comments? Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you.